What's stopping you, you, you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? What's stopping I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. What's stopping why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? You, you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. This is the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. You know, people listen to this program uh, all over the world at all different times of the day. We're going to do something just a little bit different on today's program. We're not going to take any live calls. Uh, We will get to some emails that we received, but we're also going to play some listener comment line calls that have come in at all hours of the day and night, uh, especially evenings and weekends when we're not here to take those calls live but they, uh, you know, go over to the listener comment line, they get recorded, and then uh, our producer, Charles Beery, gets them ready for broadcast. And so we're going to hear a bunch of those today. That would be uh, Charles, our producer, me, Tom Price, and Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very good. I'm looking forward to this program. It's something a little bit different. Me too. Yeah, let's, let's get do into it. it. Let's lead off with this call from our listener comment line. Hello, my name's John uh, from Malta, Ohio, and I had a quick question. I've often heard of you saying Mass, and I've asked some Catholic friends, what does the word Mass mean? And uh, it seems like a simple question, but I can't find an answer to it. Uh, If you'd answer that, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Yes, thank you so much. I really appreciate the question. So when we talk about the Mass, we're talking about the ritual that Christ instituted uh, on Thursday before his crucifixion, Holy Thursday, in the upper room when he was uh, eating with his disciples and he took bread and wine and he said of the bread this is my body and of the wine this is the the cup of the new covenant in my blood do this in memory of me and so he gave a command to the apostles that they would perpetuate that ritual activity until he comes again and we have a, uh, another vivid description of that in St Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and he he indicates, St. Paul does, that the, the, the form of this ritual that he knew was one that was handed on to him through sacred tradition. He, he knew it because it had been handed from Christ to the apostles, to, to St. Paul, who didn't know Jesus uh, in the flesh uh, during his, you know, his time on earth, uh, but, you know, met him, of course, in his vision, but, uh, but it actually inherited this body of content from the practice of the church. So it's, a, it's something that actually predates the writing of the Bible, as St. Paul makes clear, comes to us directly from Christ by way of oral tradition, and then Scripture also mentions it as well. Now, uh, what is the significance of this in the life of the Catholic faithful? Well, there are really two things about it that you ought to know. First of all, uh, Catholics regard this ritual action as a type of sacrifice. Um, and that can be confusing to some non-Catholics because they say, well, didn't the death of Christ eliminate the need for sacrifice? Why would Catholics have a ritual sacrifice at the heart of their Christian worship? And um, I'd like to speak to that. The first thing is that the Bible never says that all sacrifice has been eliminated by the death of Jesus, merely the ritual sacrifices of the Old Covenant, uh, uh, Levitical sacrifices of the Hebrew priests in the temple. But sacrifice as such is not done away with. In fact, sacrifice is how we worship. St. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, offer your bodies 
as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. St. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we're a spiritual house built out of living stones to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. So sacrifice is the form of our Christian life Mm -hmm. as we imitate Christ in his sacrifice. Now, when Jesus wants us to do something, or he wants to convey something to us, he, he tells us in words, but he also communicates it to us through rituals that he institutes. So it has more opportunity to kind of penetrate our consciousness. So, for example, Jesus wants us to be born again. He wants us to have our lives totally reframed around his divine life. And so he represents uh, that washing away of the old and that rebirth into the new or that dying and rising with him in what we call the sacrament of baptism. Uh, when you look at the form of Christian life being a life of sacrifice, Jesus represents his own sacrificial death to us in the rite of the Mass. So we take bread and wine, and these signify Christ's body and blood separated from one another. Bread over here, wine over there, body and blood separated. We see the death of Christ memorialized, and so we internalize that message and we imitate it. Now, here's a really special thing about the Mass and all the sacraments. While we can clearly see that they are signs that indicate these truths about the spiritual life and the person of Jesus, they're more than signs. They're not just signs. Jesus used very profound language when he talked about this. He didn't just say, this is the sign of my body. Uh, He said, this is my body. There's a realism to Jesus' language. When he talks about it in the Gospel of John, he says, whoever my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has life. So these signs, not only are they signs that teach Mm -hmm. the mind, but they're also sacred realities that convey to us the things that are signified. So we actually receive the mystery that we signify. And so this is what we mean by the Mass, this ritual instituted by Christ, where, he both, where we both memorialize the death of Christ and, in fact, receive Christ, uh, his true self, his real self, substantially present to us in these elements. And it is the centerpiece of Christian worship because it conveys to us the grace and the person that enable us to live those sacrificial lives. Now, the term, the word Mass specifically, comes from a phrase in the Latin text that we use at the very end of the Mass, uh, uh, and it's uh, ita misa est, which means the Mass is finished and you can go off in peace now. So it's, uh, it's just a kind of historical happenstance that that ending phrase got to be associated as the, the term to name the entire ritual. All right, very good. And thanks so much for your call. We're going to get to another call in a moment here. Quick question from Sandy. Why did they stop having a head covering for women in church out of reverence? I just became a Catholic two weeks ago at the age of 90, and I remember we always wore a head covering back in the day. Yes, thank you. I appreciate the question. So uh, in, in the letters of St. Paul, the covering of the head indicates specifically the subordination of women to men in the church and reflects in his letters some first century ideas about about the roles that men and women would play not only in the church but in society. Mm -hmm. And I think the church's understanding of the dignity of women is not confined within the parameters of first century cultural mores. And out of a, a, a profound respect for the roles that women can have, both in the church and family life and in civil life, um, that that signification does not exhaust the meaning of a woman's role in the church. And sure. I think that a, a sensitivity to that is part of the reason why it's no longer required in Mass. 
Sandy, thanks so much for your uh, question. I think it's very cool that she became a Catholic at the age of 90. I, I think that's just phenomenally cool. Awesome. Lots more on this special edition of Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Stay with us. It's called a communion here on EWTN. We're not going to take any calls today. We're doing a special listener comment line edition of our program. We've received a bunch of these over the last uh, few weeks, so we wanted to uh, answer as many of these as we can, including this question right here. Hi, this is Stuart from St. Louis, Missouri. I'm calling with a question concerning the Catholic faith with the teaching that you must be Catholic to enter the kingdom of God. Could you please explain where that's at in the Bible and why we believe that? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. That's not exactly the way the Church puts it. All right. Um, the Church says that the Church is the sign and instrument given to us publicly by Christ to reconcile all things to God. The Church exists in the world like a sacrament, both a sign and an instrument of that reconciliation, and that everyone who is saved will be saved through the grace that is mediated by the Church, and will ultimately be fully incorporated into the Church, if not in this life, in glory, right? But it does not say that someone who is not formally a Catholic in this life, uh, that such a person cannot possibly go to heaven. The Church does not teach that. It teaches the opposite, in fact, that somebody can go to heaven if they die with the grace of God in their soul, and that God can uh, d d can distribute his grace to people, uh, yes, publicly through the ministration of the Catholic Church, but he also could do it in a way known only to himself through some other means that uh, that is not the public revelation of Jesus. And so we're never in a position to look at some individual and say, I know with certainty that you are in the state of mortal sin. We, we don't know that, right? We know with certainty where grace is publicly available, is available in the church that Jesus founded. Mm -hmm. So if you want to be sure about this question of grace, well, come join us in the Catholic Church. But your, your, your absence from the Catholic Church does not guarantee the absence of grace. And so oh. that's the position. Very good. Thanks so much for your call. Here's another one on this special listener comment line program. Yeah, y'all were just teaching that the sacraments are basically saving you. And I want to know if that's exactly what you are believing and stating, that you must do the sacraments in order to be saved, because um, that's what it sounds like based off what you're saying. Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. I really appreciate it. So let's talk about what it means to be saved, and then we'll, that's the, kind of the end goal, and then we'll talk about the means to get there. From the Catholic point of view, what it means to be saved is that we persevere to the end of our Christian life, and Jesus judges that we should go to heaven. In like passages like Matthew 25, at the end of time, Christ separates the sheep from the goats and says, you folks over here, come in. You folks over there, stay out. Mm -hmm. You guys helped the poor, fed the hungry, clothed the naked, gave drink to the thirsty, etc. You guys didn't, so you guys come in, you guys go out. Uh, Revelation chapter 20 says the same thing, that uh, at the end of time, Jesus will open the book of life and judge people according to their deeds. So if you want to be saved, you have to be one of those people uh, to whom Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. That, that's what it means to be saved. Well, how do you get saved? How do you, how do you end up in that company of people to whom Christ says, well done, good and faithful servant? Well, you have to love God and love neighbor. And that's the long and the short of it. You have to love God and love neighbor. 
Now, we have a problem because that's the sum of the whole law. Okay. And St. Paul tells us in Romans 2.13 that it's not hearing the law, it's obeying the law by which we will be declared righteous. Here's the problem. We're not real good at obeying the law. It's kind of come does not come easily to us. In fact, without the grace of God, it's impossible to really love God and love neighbor. So God made a way for us. He sent his son Jesus to merit for us the grace of redemption. Christ lived a perfect life and invites us into the power of his divine life. So through the sacraments and other means, we die with Christ and rise again with him and come to share in his divine life. And so the spirit of God that comes to reside within us becomes a principle of charity and good works in our life. Uh, uh, the one who has his heart circumcised by the Holy Spirit uh, can fully meet the demands of the law. That's what the book of Romans says, verses 25 to 29. So then the question is, how do you lay hold of that gift of the Spirit? How do you lay hold of this, these graces that will transform your life and enable you to persevere the end and be saved? And uh, there are lots of ways to lay hold of them. God can, if he wants to, just zap you. He could just zap you out of, out of the blue and give you the grace to be saved if he wanted to do it that way. And some people he has zapped in that way. Um, but the problem with the zapping program is that grace is invisible. And so it's kind of easy to be deceived about being zapped. I mean, a lot of pe- people will say, hey, you know, God zapped me. He told me this. He told me that. And I'm, I'm on his side and I know the stuff and I've got the secret sauce and all that. And <laughs> you've met these people, right? Sure. You know? And uh, it's possible to have that kind of idea of yourself. So God can do it that way, but, uh, but instead, he also attaches grace to some visible signs that are, that are possessed by the church, and, and, uh, and they're under the church's jurisdiction and control, and, uh, and therefore, uh, we don't, it kind of helps mitigate that problem of the fly-by-night solo Christianity that says, I alone have the truth. And it gives the participant in those rites the deep confidence that they really are receiving the grace of Christ. And those signs are the sacraments. And so the sacraments are not the only path to the grace of God. Mm -hmm. They're just the only visible path to which we have a guarantee of coming into the life of grace. And so... uh, And they're necessary in the sense that Christ gave them to us and said, I want you to use these. So we kind of like, you know, if, do you have to eat your vegetables to stay alive? <laughs> no, no, no. All right. And so when mom says you have to eat your vegetables, well, do you have to eat your vegetables? Well, insofar as mom said so, you have to eat them. And insofar as they really are good for you and they really are going to contribute fundamentally to your health and well-being, the absence of vegetables is not going to necessarily kill you. You, you might get a little soft around the middle or something, but you're not going to die outright. Yeah. And it's kind of similar. Like, their sacraments are necessary insofar as Christ said, hey, you guys really need these. This is a very important part of Christian life. This binds us together in a community, helps us to kind of delineate where the boundaries of the church are, mm-hmm. uh, help us understand, visualize, and experience the life of grace that's offered to us therein. And so mm-hmm. Jesus is saying, look, these are vegetables in the spiritual life. Please make use of them. And and since he's our Lord, we're going to do what he says. We're not going to ignore the sacraments because he gave them to us for these reasons, to be a help to us in our life. But, you know, let's say you live someplace where you don't have a Catholic church available to you and you don't know about the Catholic church and there are no vegetables in the spiritual life around you. It's just, it's just all white bread and, and, and saturated fat where you are, right? <laughs> Is it impossible for you to be saved in that situation? No. You, God can still give you grace. 
but the sacraments are not thereby useless. All right. And we do appreciate your question. We're doing a special listener comment line edition of our program today here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Therefore, not taking any live calls, but we are getting to some of these calls that we've received from our listener comment line. I hear people of other faiths, uh, non-Catholics, who say, well, it's just okay. You can believe what you want. Communion means this to me, or uh, Mariology or things like that. They don't seem to take it serious about specifically what is the truth and why is it important to live that. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So we have to differentiate between truths because there are some truths that are uh, available to reason, to all reasonable people everywhere. Truths of the natural law, truths of natural theology, truths about the existence of God or the moral life. And if you're indifferent to those truths, well, then there's something wrong with your reason. I mean, there really is something profoundly wrong with your reason. Something's blinded your mind. So, you know, for example, if someone said, well, you, know, like you, can, you can believe that, you know, chopping off your left arm is bad for you. But, you know, I mean, all the people who want to chop their left arms out, I mean, they, <laughs> like, they should have the freedom to do that. That's perfectly fine for them. And if they want to chop their kids' arms off, so be, what are you going to say about that? No, there's an objective fact about the matter. The objective fact is, all things being equal, if we can have both our arms, we ought to keep them, right? Some people can't, through no fault of their own, but, you know, you ought not to go around chopping people up. Uh, poison is not good for you, right? It's not, a, it's not a question of indifference. It's a fact of the matter. Uh, here's another one. Willful ignorance is not good for you. So obscurantism is not good for you. You know, putting your fingers in your ears and going, nah, 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 I will not listen. I will not listen. Don't that, give me the facts. Don't is, give me the facacts. Is that obscurantism? That's obs- obscurantism is when you deliberately obscure oh, some truth. And okay. You try to keep it away from yourself or someone else. Right? Gotcha. That's, that's, act- that's objectively bad for you. Mm-hmm. So you can, that's true in the moral life. That's true in the, that's the, the civil life. It's true, say, in our biological life. Uh, humans are rational beings who, who, who have the capacity to seek and facilitate their own flourishing through rational investigation. So it is, it's not indifferent whether you, you encourage uh, the free exchange of ideas and the discovery of truths and rational reflection, critical reason. Those things are fundamentally good for us morally, physically, biologically, and otherwise. There's no indifference about that. It's a, there's a fact of the matter. And if you don't acknowledge that, then there's something wrong with your critical reasoning, reasoning apparatus. It's a little bit different when we're talking about those truths that the Church holds to be above reason, the dogmatic truths taught by the Catholic faith as divine revelation. Those things that might not be accessible to critical reason on its own terms. Things like the life of grace. Uh, you mentioned the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Marian dogma, these kinds of things, maybe the truth of the sacraments. These aren't things that we can, that we can reasonably know uh, by, by reason alone. And therefore, someone who lacks the gift of faith, who, who rejects them, rejects them because he doesn't have the special kind of access to them that the gift of faith grants to the believing Catholic. And so, you know, it's, it's difficult, in fact, I'd say it's impossible, to give someone a fully compelling argument for the truth of a dogma when they, when they doubt at the outset the authority of the Church or the inspiration of Scripture. So the approach there is to invite them uh, within the community of Christ's faithful and to sort of gain an experiential awareness 
of the effects of grace on the lives of, of the members of the church, of the participants in the Catholic faith, mm-hmm. and to see the overcoming power of the sacraments of the life of grace in the holiness of the saints, for example. Uh, to see the inward transformation that's taking place around them. This is the kind of thing that persuaded St. Augustine of Hippo of the truth of the Catholic faith, because reason alone brought him to the conviction that God existed, that God was immaterial and, and, and simple and, and ubiquitous, omnipresent, uh, that God was the highest good to be sought above all things, that God was uh, him in whom Augustine lived and moved and had his being more interior to him than Augustine was to his very self, and that the goal of his life should be conformity to that one first principle in the life of virtue and chastity. He came to all of that without the benefit of the Catholic faith. Mm. Here was his problem. He couldn't do it. He couldn't, he couldn't consistently live that way because he was a sex addict. That's just the fact of the matter. That's yeah. who he was. He couldn't do it. And uh, a lot of things changed his mind, but one of them, very salient, was he encountered uh, the story of St. Anthony of the Desert, St. Anthony the Great. And he was impressed by the fact that Anthony and his compatriots were not highly educated in philosophy. And uh, they weren't literate men. They weren't sophisticated men. And yet their lives exhibited far more supernatural power than Augustine's own life. And there was a, there was a, a beauty to their monastic life and to their chastity and a goodness and a strength there that he lacked. And he saw the point, it, it, in, a, in a nutshell, was that he needed a change of his will. He needed a transformation of his whole way of being that he didn't have the power to give himself. And so, in an act of faith, he reached out to the God who manifests himself to us through the sacraments of the Catholic Church and the person of Jesus Christ, and he sought the transformation that the Church promised in baptism, and he experienced it. And so what Platonism and Neoplatonism had only indicated and and created a desire for in his life, Catholicism actually delivered. And and, And so then he came to the conviction that faith... Uh, animated and fulfilled the life of reason without contradicting it. These are the kinds of considerations that would bring someone to accept the dogmatic teachings of the Catholic Church above and beyond those truths of reason that all reasonable people could come to. Thanks so much for your question. Here's one from Terry. I was raised a Catholic. However, I am a fallen-away Catholic, but now I'm thinking about getting back to my faith. I have a question as to what happens to us after we die. Do we go to an afterlife purgatory, heaven, or hell, or do we sleep until Jesus comes again? I'm very confused by this. Yes, thank you so much. I appreciate the question. So the teaching of the Catholic Church is that immediately upon death, there is an individual judgment, a judgment of your particular soul uh, that will determine your ultimate destiny, whether you'll end up ultimately in heaven or hell. Uh, there'll also be a determination if, if you do die in the state of grace and God's friendship, whether you go immediately to heaven or whether you go to the to the uh, antechamber, the cleaning up room, you know the uh, <laughs> the mud room, the mud room, right? exactly, yeah. where you get to wipe your feet off, so to speak, and that's what we call purgatory. So immediately upon death, it will be one of three destinations: um, hell, heaven, or almost heaven, which is purgatory. Mm-hmm. And I really do mean almost heaven. Uh, you know, the saints tell us that that the happiness of the soul in purgatory is greater than any other, except the souls in heaven. And why is that? Well. Uh, because the soul in purgatory is is permanently united to God in charity, permanently un- and has 
utter certainty in their salvation. That's a great way to be in life. Sure is. You know, no, no, no ambiguity at all. I'm, I am, I am literally in the mudroom right now. Yeah. And dinner's on the table waiting for me. I just got to get cleaned up, and then in I go. Mother Angelica would say, "Don't aim for purgatory. Aim for heaven, because what if you miss? Right. Right. There's always the mudroom. <laughs> right. Exactly. All right. Very good. And thanks to, uh, so much, Terry, for your question here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. We're doing a special recorded program today where we're uh, doing a whole bunch of these listener comment line questions. And if you would like to send us an email, we'll take those as well. CTC at EWTN.com. CTC at EWTN.com. Back in just a moment with lots more here on this special edition of Call to Communion on EWTN. Stay with us. It's called a communion here on EWTN. On this question, on this uh, program, we like to ask the question, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? And we get all sorts of uh, questions and comments, statements, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of confused folks out there. Uh, if you want to end that confusion, just keep listening to Call to Communion. Keep listening to EWTN. We will get you squared away here on what the Catholic faith actually teaches. Today, we're uh, not taking any live calls. We're uh, bringing you a bunch of calls that we've come in that have come in over the past few weeks on our EWTN listener comment line, including this one. Hi, this is Bob in Kansas City, Missouri. The Father here keeps pointing out to uh, about the readings and writings of St. Thomas and other Catholic theologians, but he minimizes Calvin. Why is St. Thomas more important than Calvin? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Love that one. Okay, so uh, Thomas is uh, a doctor of the Church, a Catholic theologian. John Calvin uh, left the Catholic Church and, and more or less started his own religion and rejected many of the principles of the Catholic faith, not all of them. Uh, but extremely importantly, he rejected the fundamental authority structure of Catholicism and, and therefore great big heaping piles of divine revelation that he left sort of by the roadside yeah. and then offered his own idiosyncratic interpretation of the parts that he retained. And, uh, and so it's with good reason that a Catholic priest would not favorably cite Calvin from the pulpit because he is not a Catholic author and he is not a safe author. And uh, I feel somewhat... Uh, strongly about this personally, because I grew up in a Calvinist church, and uh, and I thought that I would be a Calvinist theologian, that I would promulgate th- the thinking of John Calvin throughout the world, if you can believe such a thing. And through doctoral studies on Calvin, I, I came first to the conclusion that Calvin's doctrine was novel, that it wasn't what the Bible taught, it wasn't what sacred tradition taught, and therefore it couldn't be true. And moreover, it wasn't even what modern Presbyterians taught. Like it was so different, both from antiquity and from modern evangelical Protestantism, that I realized this this had no claim on being the faith once for all delivered to the church. This was one man's idiosyncratic yeah. ideological program. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I also came to the conviction that not only was it not true, uh, but that it was fundamentally evil, and that it was uh, profoundly spiritually harmful to people that hold it. And I'll tell you why I think that. So really at the root of Calvinism, and a lot of things we could say about it, at the root of Calvinism is the conviction that I can know for sure that I'm on God's team, and I can know for sure that you're not. And, uh, and the way Calvin framed it uh, was that you, you know for sure you're on God's team if you're on Calvin's team. 
more or less. And in his own <laughs> church, I mean, like in, in Geneva, it became a, a crime, a civil crime, to say anything against Calvin's doctrine. That was wow. that was punishable, you know. And uh, and and the authority of the minister specifically was a was a point of dogma and of civil law in Geneva. So you couldn't contradict him. You couldn't. I mean, you couldn't appeal to the Bible against him. He actually tried to have Jerome Bolsick executed for that. Uh, but it led to a kind of uh, tribalism and theological hubris uh, that has been the justification for so much abuse, both individually and, and at the societal level, uh, for slavery, for colonialism, um, for endless infighting and bickering, um, for uh, you know for arrogance and pride and and spiritual abuse within churches and in and then in, in the individual lives of, of individual Calvinists. I mean the, the tendency is to fall into one of two camps when you get into that kind of spirituality. Either presumption, I know that I'm right, mm. right? I've got the stuff, I have the perfect doctrine, or I've had the perfect spiritual experience, and therefore I, I know I'm on God's side. Uh, or the opposite, which is deep despair and anxiety and worry. And uh, you know, if you've ever read a Calvinist narrative like Jonathan Edwards' account of the First Great Awakening, his surprising narrative of religious conversions in New England. Um, despair over the question of salvation and, and bringing people to a state of absolute eschatological anxiety was integral to the, the Puritan and later Calvinist system of salvation, that you, 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 you make people good Calvinists, so to speak, by first scaring the utter living daylights out of them, and then telling them that they're saved and their neighbors are still not. Wow. Right? And it had nothing to do with the life of the virtues or charity as such. It had to do with with having esoteric uh, spiritual experiences and holding to sort of narrowly defined systems of dogma. And that's just not the good of the human person, Right. Um, dogma in the Catholic Church serves to illumine us, to be a light to us, to provoke us to change our way of life so that we be more like the God of love and charity who desires that all be saved, uh, not for us to lord it over our neighbors. And it is, a, it is a conspicuous part of the Catholic system that we do not claim to know definitively who is elect and who is not. And, uh, and, and therefore, we, we seek to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling and to take the log out of our own eye rather than the, the, the twig or the speck out of our neighbors. Yeah. And that's, so there's, a, there's an entirely different orientation towards the spiritual and religious life. Let me grow in charity and the virtues, especially the virtue of humility, and let me not presume that I am better than my fellow man always seeking to convert him to my narrow point of view, let me seek to serve him in love. And if I can be a light and a witness to the goodness of Christ, then maybe that person will be drawn also into the light of Christ and come to greater holiness and sanctity than me, right? But it's ultimately God who's the judge of souls. Mm. I'm just trying to be an instrument here here and now of that goodness that that God condescends to give me without having to stand in judgment over my neighbor. That that's really the Catholic way of thinking about this, so different from the Calvinist. It really is. And and just, you know, if nothing else, it sounds like a mentally much healthier life. Oh, it's 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 it is so much healthier, Tom. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you uh, that I mean uh, the, the anecdotes and the stories of those who have experienced psychological trauma and abuse in this kind of uh, hot box spiritual environment in which I grew up, in which yeah. a lot of Calvinists grew up, mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, 
Luther believed, uh, Luther was a kind of a neurotic person, well, more than a little bit. He was a very depressive person, sort of bipolar, who kept going from highs and lows. And he wasn't a Calvinist, but he, he introduced this to Calvinism. And he really set up this idea that, that essential to the Christian life was to recapitulate his own experience of spiritual drama. And so he built into the fabric of his understanding of salvation that people have to come to despair and then to a kind of, uh, 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 of uh, delirious self-regard without regard to merit. Wow. You know, so you, first you think you're absolute trash, then you think that absolutely everything is okay even though you're still trash. Yeah. You know, and that was, that's the doctrinal justification as Luther understood it. Like, it's charity and virtue have nothing to do with it. He mm-hmm. wrote in the book of his commentary on Galatians, Luther did, that God never smiled on a man for his charity or virtues. And what an atrocious thing to say. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like, the, like the, I cannot think of a formula less conducive to a healthy spiritual life than the conviction that the life of charity and virtues are, is not pleasing to God. Yeah. Wow. Well, there you go. And uh, thank you so much uh, for your call. We're playing uh, some of the great uh, listener comment line questions that have come in over the past few weeks here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Let's go to one more. Yes, my name is Mitch from Indiana, and I'd like to know how Roman Catholic faith looks at the old Catholic uh, faith. Um, Is it valid? Uh, How do we view the old Catholic faith with uh, priests being married and, and so forth, uh, women priests in the church. Sure, Thank you, yeah. and God bless you. Thanks. Okay. They're neither old nor Catholic. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a that's a rather confusing term, kind of like Planned Parenthood. Sure, sure. It's, it is confusing. Yes. So the so-called old Catholic Church was a group that split away from the Catholic faith uh, in the 19th century over the question of the First Vatican Council. They were opposed to the dogmatic uh, definition of papal infallibility. And therefore, they went off and did their own thing. And they have departed from Catholic unity and from historic Catholic doctrine. So they're neither old nor Catholic. Uh, Now, you raised two specific issues that I'd like to differentiate. One is the married clergy, and the other one is women priests. The Catholic Church has married clergy. We have always had married clergy. St. Peter, the first pope, was married. We've always had married clergy. We still have married clergy. We have married clergy to this day. Uh, we have them in sort of two categories. We have uh, Eastern rites of the Catholic Church that uh, that will routinely ordain married men. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have in the Latin rite of the Church, we have some people who were serving in ministry outside the Catholic faith and were married, typically Anglicans, uh, who when they become Catholic are ordained to the Catholic faith through a special dispensation that is established specifically for them. And so those converts uh, often, you know, are married and they'll come into ministry in the Catholic faith. So either through the Eastern Rite, so it has a long tradition mm-hmm. of, of, of ordaining married men, and the Latin Rite, which has a few exceptional cases, we have always had married clergy. That's not the majority, particularly not in the Roman Rite, but they do exist. Uh, women priests is a, is a different creature, different thing altogether. And uh, there is no historical precedent for that in the tradition either East or West and no provision made for that in canon law or by the apostles or by Christ. And so, you know, what is what is all done always everywhere and by all within Catholic history is that's what we mean by the ordinary infallible teaching of the church. And so it is uh, it's sort of absolutely against uh, the revealed teaching of Christ about the nature of the church that we can discern through this universal practice. Uh, and Pope John Paul II 
was not the first, but he was the one who most definitively nailed that nail in the coffin of women priesthood and said, this is a, this is, this is a truth of the Catholic faith handed on by divine revelation and that Catholics must definitively hold that uh, women cannot be ordained to the sacred priesthood of a, a ministerial priesthood. Yeah, now, yeah. that being said, every baptized woman in the Catholic faith is a priest of the Catholic Church according to the baptismal priesthood. And, uh, and leadership, teaching, governance, administration, um, none of these things are denied women in the Catholic Church. And there are, there are manifold opportunities for women to exercise all of these charisms you know, this network that we're on right now yes. was founded by a Catholic woman who exercised the gifts both of teaching and of governance. She was the boss and the teacher of the whole kitten caboodle. And she was a Catholic woman who was very opposed to women wanting to become ordained Catholic priests. And, you know, it, it always tickles me, you know, because in high school she learned, she took a class in reading blueprints which later became very handy. Yes. When, you know, construction of EWTN, construction of the shrine in Hansville, she was able to say, nope, this, this wall doesn't go here. And they would go, oh, you're right. I just, I just get tickled. You know, I, I don't know that. how to read blueprints. It's not easy. And, and in fact, I know how to do very few things except <laughs> talk on the radio about the Catholic faith. That's about the only thing I know how to do. You're in the right place, brother. You definitely are. It's called a communion right here on EWTN. Thank you so much for that call. We'll get to some more in just a moment here. I want to tell you about a wonderful program we bring to you each and every weekend on EWTN Radio. It is Blessed to Play with our friend Ron Meyer. He talks with athletes and sports professionals about the role that faith plays in their lives. And you'll hear from some amazing men and women, their stories, not only, you know, on and off their their field of competition, but also their own faith life. It's a great show. Do check it out Sunday afternoons, 4.30 p.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. Let's get to one of those uh, calls that came in to us on the listener comment line. My name is Elvira, and I'm from Goodyear, Arizona. And I have a question for Dr. Anders. What is the difference between fear of God and reverential fear? Oh, okay. The difference between fear of God and, and reverential, reverential fear. Yes. I, I'm, I'm not sure that I know uh, what these distinct categories, uh, how you're differentiating them. So I, I don't know that I can answer the question. I mean, fear of God does not mean a kind of craven terror that we experience, like, you know, at the sight of a high cliff if you're about to fall over or a grizzly bear, you know, barreling down yeah, on you in the woods yeah. or something or how you feel at a horror film. Mm -hmm. That's not what we mean by fear of God. We're really talking about a profound respect for, for God's awesome holiness and the obligation that we have to conform our lives to that uh, holiness in our character, that we be people of love and charity and reasonableness and virtue, and that it really matters if we don't do that. Right, it's not a matter of indifference if we reform our moral right. lives, and that's the, the seriousness about that would be what we mean by the fear of God. But if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you're baptized, if you're united to Christ, it's a filial fear. It's it's the kind of fear and respect that a son has for a beloved father or grandfather, uh, where you know you're loved, and it's out of, it's out of a motivation of love that you're deeply desirous to please the one who loves you. And anyone sure. who's had a good parent. You're not an abusive one, but right, a good right. and loving parent who was himself 
a very virtuous father or grandfather knows what I'm talking about. You so you so much want to be like that man that you admire mm-hmm. and to conform your life to him, but it's out of charity and admiration. That's the filial fear that a Christian can have. Absolutely. Thanks so much for your call. We're doing a special listener comment line program here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Here's another call that came in during the overnight hours. This is Charles in Virginia. Child in my class, I asked a question. Teacher, is Jesus God? I answered, of course, my dear. Did I answer correctly? Yes, you absolutely answered correctly. The teaching of the Catholic faith is that Jesus Christ is both God and man. He's a, a, a person with two natures, divine nature, human nature. Mm-hmm. And so it is true to say of Christ that he is God. It is also true to say of Christ that he is man. He is both. Yeah. Well, there you go. Appreciate that call. Here is another one. My name is Sally. I have a question about uh, John 20, number 16 and 17. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned to him in Hebrew, Rabboni. Jesus said to her, do not hold me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to the brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So our book club at church has been um, trying to see what um, he meant by that. Yes, I appreciate the question. So the ascension of Christ, which we celebrate liturgically, is an important part of the, of the, the scheme of redemption. And Christ said, you know, when I'm lifted up, I will draw them into myself. And that, of course, refers both to the crucifixion, but I believe also to the ascension. Uh, St. Paul tells us that we are to set our hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And when when Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? Jesus said, I am, but my kingdom is not of this world. Had Christ not ascended, we might seek Jesus here or there. We might seek him in Jerusalem. We might seek him in Nazareth. We might seek him in Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. And we would think that the important thing was proximity to his uh, to his earthly body, um, you know, as it could be located in time and space on planet Earth. And that, that was the that was the thing that was needful and that he was going to bring that kind of transformative experience to the world, the kind that could be lived out in a in, in the, the, the sort of physical, relational, civil domain. And that's what a lot of his contemporaries thought. They expected Jesus to be a political king, a political messiah, who would lead Israel to the kind of glory that it had experienced under the Solomonic Empire, that she would conquer her enemies, throw off the yoke of the Romans, and pagan tribes would bring tribute on camels, silver and gold, to Jerusalem. And Know, that sort of thing would be flowing in the streets. And uh, it was essential that people not confuse the kingdom of God with that kind of reality, sure. right? But that we recognize that we could lift our hearts up to things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And Jesus is, his kingship and his fullness is so much greater. It's something that penetrates all of reality. He is the divine logos, the principle of divine reason. Uh, uh, that uh, that enters into the mind of every man and calls all of us to obedience. That that's that's the Christ to whom we lift up our hearts now that He's ascended. And so this this language about don't hold on to me here, like my mission is not complete. I've got to ascend to the Father. Hope that is helpful for you. We're playing uh, some of the great uh, calls that have come in during the off hours during our uh, listener comment line special program here on Call to Communion. Let's get to this one. Yeah, my name is Ron, Seattle, Washington. Just 
asking a question about when Christ asked or said that he was going to be in the tomb for three nights and three days, and and uh, then when we read the Bible, the, the days don't seem to fit because he died on a Friday and rose on a Sunday. Just wondering uh, how that's explained, if they have the answer for that. I'm kind of curious about that. Okay. He didn't spend three full days and three full nights into uh, the tomb like he said he was going to. Anyway. That's my question. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. So I don't think Jesus said, I'm going to spend three 24-hour periods in the tomb. He never said that. Now, you know, it, it, modern Americans, we tend to reckon time in a particular way that, that's cultural. Uh, but the fact that he, you know, he sort of touched ground, if you will, on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, you know, there were three successive days in which he was in the tomb. That's that's all that's in view here. Okay. Was he there Friday? Yeah. Was he there Saturday? Yeah. Was he there at least part of the day on Sunday? Yeah. All right, then. That's how they do it. I think we have time for one or two more. Let's get to this call from our listener comment line. Hi. I was uh, calling regarding babies that are not baptized and they're not allowed into the kingdom of heaven if they're not baptized. But I thought that was uh, something difficult for me to comprehend because why are babies that are in the womb that are aborted allowed to the kingdom of heaven? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Yep, that'd be a stumper if that were the position of the church, right? If we could, if we said emphatically, no unbaptized babies in heaven, that would really be a stumper because it would seem to conflict uh, God's mercy and His universal will to save. Fortunately, that's not what the church says. There were some medieval theologians who reasoned from the necessity of baptism and said, well, if baptism is necessary, which it is, and babies aren't baptized, then maybe they don't get into heaven. But they, they surely can't go to hell because they have no sin to, you know, to pay for. So they imagined, and this was just an imagining, they imagined that there might be a place called limbo. They called it limbo, where uh, the souls of unbaptized children could go, and it would be a place of purely natural happiness. They'd have a great time there, uh, but it wouldn't be the beatific vision, certainly not a punishment. Uh, but modern theologians, including the popes, have said, you know, limbo was a thought experiment to try to solve a problem that really isn't a problem. And uh, the more reasonable position is to think about God's mercy and the universal will to salvation, and so to have a very reasonable hope, even though we don't have some specific revelation on this issue, mm -hmm. to maintain a lively uh, uh, hope that such souls are in fact saved, and, and I would say almost bordering on a presumption that they are. Very good. And we have time for one more on our uh, special program here as we're playing these calls that came in to us overnight on the listener comment line. My name is Jane from Virginia. I have a question about praying to the saints. How does that help? Thank you. Yep, thanks. Appreciate it. It helps in several ways. Uh, one way is that the saints are intercessors. And just like you might ask a friend of yours at church, hey, you know, I've got to go in for surgery on Friday, say a prayer for me, and she does. And we believe that prayer can be efficacious, and, and the prayer of a righteous man is very efficacious, St. James says. The saints are very righteous, so their prayers are very powerful. The saints can intercede for you, and that's very helpful. Uh, there's another way that it can help us. Um, it helps us, the, the, the ministry of, of intercession, asking for prayer, receiving prayer, builds up charity within the body of Christ. So when you turn to your friend again and you say, please pray for me, that's an expression of trust, of admiration, of intimacy. And in, in return, when the friend says, yes, I'll certainly pray for you, and you know they will, that's an expression of care, of solicitude, of companionship, of accompaniment. So it builds up charity within the body of Christ. Also, when you turn to the saints for prayer, you typically think about them. 
And so we call to mind the holiness of the saints. And the reason for their powerful prayers is the fact of their holiness. And so the saints can become for us models of charity and show us what it means to live a Christian life according to different states of life. And so it's very edifying for us to think and contemplate, show devotion to the saints, because they help us by their example, inspire us to our own lives of piety and virtue. No, very good. And we have time for one last one, a question from Kathy. I heard you answer that the Catholic Church didn't add books to the Bible. One of my friends also tells me we added rather than Protestants took away. What did the official Bible look like prior to the Reformation? And can you explain with uh, some specific details? Yes, great question. So uh, how would you know, right? And when you're talking about uh, what does the Bible look like, better question is, how is the Bible constituted? What makes it to be a Bible? Mm. Why this collection of books versus some other collection of books? Because, see, in Christian antiquity, there were actually debates about this question. There were disputes about which books should be or not be included in the text of Scripture. And the way the Church answered the question was to say, well, which ones have universal ecclesiastical use? Which are the books that are read in sacred worship all throughout the Christian world? That's what's come down to us from the Apostles. And that, of course, included these deuterocanonical texts that Protestants eventually took out. If you want to know what books of the Bible Catholics were reading and citing and quoting from throughout the Middle Ages, yes, it would have included these deuterocanonical texts. Um, but, uh, but the important question is, what is it that makes a text to be canonical? It's, it's the fact of the Church's usage and the declaration of the Church, authoritatively, because Christ said, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, that these things are, in fact, sacred Scripture. All right, Kathy, thanks so much uh, for your email. You know, I don't think we've ever done a show like this uh, where we asked, uh, uh, you know, put on a whole bunch of calls from the listener comment line. Have we ever done that? No, we've sampled here and there, but this is the... This is kind of fun. I think we should do this again. All right, let's do it. Well, definitely. And we hope that you're along for the ride the next time we do the one of these uh, listener comment line programs. And uh, I know I'm hoping to be here. Hope that you're here as well. My thanks to uh, our great producer here, Charles Berry, and Dr. David Anders. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Keep in mind that we do our live program each and every Monday through Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern, with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern. We also uh, put up that podcast each and every day at EWTNRadio.net, EWTNRadio.net. Fast-moving show here. Glad we could answer all these questions that we did today off from the listener comment line. Uh, which, uh, you know, records what you d- what you say when you call when the show is not on the air. On behalf of our great producer, Charles, Dr. David Anders, I'm Tom Price. See you next time here on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless. <laughs>